Hello and welcome to The Ahmad Show, where we get to sit down with entrepreneurs and creative spirits from around the world. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia, A-M-A-D-M-I-A-A-N, or at The Ahmad Show. This week, I get a chance to sit down with Malika Varma, an Indian-Canadian strategic director of Raw Mango, as well as the founder of Border and Fall, who happens to be living in India. In this episode, Malika talks us through her journey of discovering the power of communication. She emphasizes how influential words can be when they serve as a geolocalizer and a cultural identifier. Malika also talks about how her work advocates India's design and craft communities and explains what it authentically means to be made in India. So without further ado, let's get straight to Malika. We're in fall kind of come to be like there's so many different verticals that you you, you kind of work in and, and the stuff that you do is so beautifully intertwined but I'm, I'm curious as to what led you to that point of starting border and fall uh, absolutely i think um you know uh like most things it's a culmination of of life experiences and looking at opportunity and um, you know, and, and, and a mix of those. And so particularly with Border and Fall, uh, you know, I was working in, between Montreal and New York for many years, um, you know, around 2002 to 2006. And around that time uh, is when I made my um, first trip to India um, with the lens of trying to uh, understand what was happening there for, for work. So my eyes had already at, at, in 2006 shifted uh, to, to India and I wasn't sure what was happening in the creative industries there. Growing up, my only access to design, and that's in broad terms, it was through Stardust magazine, which I don't know if you um, read or remember, but Stardust I, was I, like, I, yeah, right? It was Stardust. Sure. So you are or you aren't? I'm not. I'd love for oh, you to Okay, well, well so, so, so Stardust was actually and is actually an Indian uh, produced magazine um, that was all about Bollywood. And uh, given that Bollywood was still, um, you know, the entry point for fashion and all conversations, everything that you'd see coming out of Stardust, it would have, you know, Anil Kapoor on the cover or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Sri Devi or whatever. And it was the only kind of access, this is pre-internet, to um, Indian pop culture that, that I had. And so I really looked at those public... And they weren't fashion related or designed, but they were, you know, Bollywood, which is the um, stakeholder of all of those and still kind of remains it in, in some way in, in, in larger pop culture terms. So, yeah, I think you know, Stardust really, in, in, you know, which is it's kind of funny for those who know it because it's, it's kind of basically a tabloid. Uh, so that, that was it. And so aside from Stardust. Um, India trips have always been, you know, about family, and then aesthetic is an extension of of of, uh, of what what their likes are, right? Because you're there so quickly. Whether it's for a few weeks, it's always where your aunt's going to take you, or so and so's friend takes you to the jeweler. You don't really have a chance to develop your own sense of aesthetic, um, you know, as as an NRI a lot of times. And so I had been working uh, with emerging design talent uh, here in Montreal and in New York, um, you know, that was much more in the space of the Scandinavian uh, ready to wear contemporary sportswear yeah. days so with the acne philippa k nudies of of, of um that space so our our yeah and so our agency actually was you know responsible for bringing all those brands to north america and kind of charting uh their growth and so i worked uh, very closely with philippa k for a number of years and it was just wonderful to see um the ascent of what at that point were smaller you know emerging um aesthetics and designers from uh scandinavia which there were household names but 
introducing them to the market. So working with emerging design talents has always been um, close to my heart. It's things I've, you know, I've worked informally and informally in, in that space. And so when I went to India in 2006, it was really about figuring out what was, um, what was the opportunity uh, there. And I thought really, you know, making the uh, jump to, to luxury would make sense because in, in 06, it was about India, China in the same breath and really about the, the growth of both of them and, you know, how Chanel would be at 500 stores and whatnot. And, um, you know, long story short, after a few months of interviewing, it became clear to me that luxury was still many, many years away in India. And it was really uh, very much about uh, the more um, commercial aspect of premium positioning. So I actually joined Tommy Hilfiger, uh, which was a brand um, that my boss, the CEO at, uh, at that time, who's still actually the CEO, asked me, he said, how much do you respect Tommy Hilfiger? And because he knew I was coming from a country where it was sold at Macy's or Sears and, and yeah. all those kind of brands. And I said, you know what, um, how much do I respect it? Well, I, I don't wear the brand if that's what you're asking. Um, you know, I don't identify it with it aesthetically, yeah. but do I respect a brand that's be able, been able to reinvent itself decade after decade, market after market, grown into a full lifestyle brand, stood the test of time? I said, I have enormous respect for that. And it's really with that, um, you know, with that in mind that I joined a company that I stayed with for almost two years. Uh, and, you know, was in a, the, a retail operations position. So I was responsible for, um, you know, the, the licensees, franchisee relationships with department stores, with our franchisee partners, all the front end recruitment. And at that time, earning 15,000 rupees uh, a month was uh, something that was still uh, a very, very high uh, salary. That's probably doubled at this point to about 30000 for those positions. But uh, we were paying the highest in terms of retail salaries. And a lot of the kids at that age, at that, at that time, were earning more than their parents had. And so it was a very interesting demographic. And I got to travel India the length and breadth and open up. We opened up about 60 stores in those two years. So whether it was Jalandhar to Patiala, um, you know, to, to outskirts of Bangalore, it was it was just an incredible experience. Uh, that being said, working for part of a larger um, larger wheel was something that you know had really driven me away from uh, from emerging design talent. I remember one defining moment when I was recruiting from uh, NIFT uh, in in India, which has about 11 schools across the country. And we were one of their top recruiters. And I remember um, this guy, Kunwar, who uh, I still remember his name because he was a very promising accessories designer. Uh, and he... Uh, and we don't have a lot of accessory designers still in India. We're one of the largest leather producers in the world. And, and yet we don't have, um, you know, in terms of a global economy of, of, of being able to produce globally, um, you know, marketable or sellable uh, leather goods. And so he was very promising, but somehow, you know, through persuasion, I, I convinced him to join Tommy Hilfiger in a merchandising position. And, th and that was it. And I remember thinking, did I just really derail one of the few talents that I've ever really seen into joining a corporate where that dream is just probably going to be yeah. shelved um, forever? And, and the answer is yes, because I, I believe he, he stayed at Tommy for a good 10 years. Um, and so, so I remember that being one of those defining moments and uh, took a step back and said, let me really figure out what I want to do. And in that time, I'd been in India for, for two years and I still didn't have a sense uh, of what was happening on the ground in design, even though there was Vogue's at that point um, and, and L's and all that stuff. And I still didn't have a sense of, of who, who were really 
the aesthetic decision makers, uh, people who are really changing the narrative. What, what was the narrative? What needed to be changed? And so it took about a year uh, to really map what I considered, um, you know, the, the people who are shifting perceptions of what it means to make in India, uh, very much focused on a craft, uh, textile and fashion narrative. And uh, so it was a lot of lunches, a lot of um, coffees. And, and India is beautiful for that because you don't have to have an agenda. Uh, people are happy to meet. And that's one of the things that yeah. I love. And yeah, it's, it, and, I, and I think that's what's interesting about the world right now is that a lot of people People are saying now is a great time to catch that person that you were never able to. But India has actually always functioned like that, and and that's um, a beautiful cultural, um, you know, sort of reality, right? Where you can sit and ping anyone usually for fifteen minutes. So, so that Every, was it. Everyone that was, is down for chai. Sorry. Everyone is always down for chai. Yeah, everyone's down for chai. Everyone's also down for chatting about themselves. I think that's a universal truth. Uh, here I am speaking to you. Uh, so so I, I kind of uh, spoke directly to that and just um, developed, like I said, my own sense of what was happening. And through that um, began, you know, Border and Fall, which started off as a non-revenue website that was focused on highlighting the work of incredible design talent in India. And at that point, people like... Um, Ruchika from Bodice were in their first collection. So was Nimish, uh, Nikhil D, Manu from Whereabout. You know, this incredible group of, of kids, because we were all kids, uh, coming together and, um, and being able to uh, show their work uh, online uh, to an audience where, where they didn't really have that digital, things weren't really digital first. And so borderandfall.com started in that way and continued in that way for many years. And then very soon after we um, received um, a call from Lamille, which was which is a, a wonderful retail store in Bombay, really at the forefront of um, distribution for a lot of incredible brands. And um, we worked on their editorial content um, for, for many years. Uh, you know, helping develop their front-facing voice uh, that they used uh, to talk about the lifestyle and um, the Lamille uh, life and have, you know, since then grew, grew from there quite organically uh, into an agency and so to answer, you know, kind of the point that you made earlier is into an agency that really represents a lot of the skill set and background that, that I bring to the table and of course um, with my incredible colleagues and so uh, with my experience in, in, in branding um, and communication and, and sales and distribution and then of course with retail that all led to a really interesting sort of mix of um, services that we offer at Border and Fall now so we consider ourselves very much a 360 in the creative and strategic aspects of uh, you know of brand building and in design and you know aside from PR really as a vertical, uh, we were able to help small, you know, mid, large uh, scale businesses, whether it's on branding or rebranding or on special projects, um, as it were, that are just, uh, let's say, print book focused or uh, looking at distribution for, for a few brands. And so that's really how, how it's grown. So I think I've been all over the place, but hopefully that gives uh, an insight into um, how we've grown. I, I love it. And there's multiple things inside Border and Full and, and some things that I want to ask you about. But there was a couple of things that kind of stood out while, while you were, were while you were recounting that story. Now, one, I'm very curious, what was it in the early days that kind of hooked you to emerging designers? I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you still work with emerging designers today. And mm -hmm. especially the narrative, the story that you were telling me about, um, shit, I forgot the name, um, of the jewelry designer. Anut Singh. 
No, you, there was a, there was a young designer you took out from the university. Oh, the, the ex accessory designer. Accessory yeah. designer, sorry, yeah, yeah, another yeah. accessory designer. Yeah, and yeah. and the the question over there which stood out for me, and it's something that I relate to as well, is Southeast Asia is a producer of so many different natural products, whether it be cotton, whether it be different kinds of uh, leathers, whether it be um, different kinds of crafts. Why, in your opinion, do we? we lack that idea of, of we can build a brand. Like I look at it from, from the venture side of things, like being an investor, when we invest into companies, I see so much talent in, in services. Like we are so ex extremely, extremely talented when it comes to doing things. But when it comes to creating a visionary kind of brand, that's where, I mean, if I give you the example of, of venture capital and tech, people lack the idea of, we can look 10 years down the line and we, we can create a multi-billion dollar company, but we can work for a kayak or an Amazon or a something and be the best performer. But why can't we in this part of the world have the idea for the Amazon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're the ones who build, um, you know, ClearTrip, which is modeled off of kayak, right? So exactly. it's me too companies are are you know uh, very much uh you know the, the way of 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 the indian economy and and i think there's a number of reasons for that i think uh, you know just speaking about design i think there's um uh, a confidence that that uh is definitely emerged and i can share with you my insights on why i think that's changed but fundamentally we have to acknowledge that india is very much new as as a as a country, right? And to be able, and, and has for, for a long time been told what aspirational is and, and Indians certainly weren't. Being being Indian certainly wasn't. It was always about um, somewhere else, right? Uh, yeah. You know, whether it was the British, whether it was, you know, I mean, you can go back and back into history, but the point is be be something other and and be just the producer, don't be the mind, right? So India's been seen as a producer and, and still is a, seen as a producer nation, which is one of the largest challenges we have, um, you know, across the board, but, but and that's one of my greatest hopes is that can we be seen as design thinkers and not just um, you know a producer nation and, and and that is changing and so I think you know I remember um, in 2006 and 2007 a lot of conversations were about with designers about where they, what they saw in the future and everybody 10 out of 10 were I, I want to be international and and I was coming in from um, you know the the international side, and so uh, I saw that 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 willingness to make a connection because I represented an outside, you know, outsider was very high, and then suddenly. Um, you know, we were hit by the global recession. And what was interesting, and I credit that to a turning point in Indian design, where suddenly the avenues to sell uh, in New York or in Paris were completely dried up. And um, one had to look within and make do with with um, with India. And I think a lot of people rose to that occasion. And with that grew a homegrown sense of confidence that that India is enough. Uh, because it certainly is, uh, and it maybe required different product, different weightage of product categories, or in different seasons. But a lot of people, um, I think, uh, subconsciously, consciously moved towards that direction, and that that recession, I think, was really a fundamental turning point for Indian design um, because it had just started its second wave. Uh, the earlier wave was about 20 years earlier, but this 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 new generation were the first foreign return students coming from back from Central St. Martin's or FIT or whatnot. The earlier generation was all India educated and 
and that's fine. I mean, that, that I'm not saying anything negative about that, but it was really the start of a new crop. And, and this sort of, this new creative class has really emerged over the last um, 10 to 13 years, which has been phenomenal to see. So a lot of things serendipitously aligned. And so I think a lot of it comes from a sense of confidence, which we see now uh, in, in, in spades. We still don't have enough talent, but, that, but that's okay. We're still very young. That goes back to the point of having patience. Um, yeah. We're not even, you know, 100 years old, right? No. Now, yeah. a lot of the stuff that you do has so much to do with language and education and, and, and content production as well. On your website, you have so many beautiful articles and, and the stuff that you, the work that you've done. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the Sari series and, and mm -hmm. the other project that you're working on in terms of semantics. Mm -hmm. um, but coming back to the, the shifting the narrative of becoming a design economy, mm -hmm. how do you... Do you work with the universities? Do you work with the design schools? Do you work with any of these kinds of thought leaders that allows the narrative in the students and the younger generation to change and to focus a little, a little bit more on India and, and that pride of older craftsmen and older crafts and, and coming back or, or, or even taking the crafts and, and appreciating them either within the economy of India and seeing if those those kinds of supply chains work as a business or international supply chains work as a business. But do you see that happening on, on that level? I, I would I would love to. Uh, that's actually the level that we tried for many, many years to engage with. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm a bit of an idealist uh, community thinker and, um, you know, look forward to looking, you know, working on initiatives that impact change. And I think uh, students are very much a part of that equation. And, you know, unfortunately, the reality in India at an institutional level is um, not just inertia and red tape, but, um, you know, just very uh, a, a very analog, for, for lack of better uh, words, w way of approaching things. And so uh, there's been a number of occasions, whether it's about through the Sari series, you know, a, a project that we worked on disseminating that for free in schools or whatnot. Uh, we've, the, the most amount of institutional support we've seen has been through museums and schools uh, internationally, um, because I think they fundamentally, uh, you know, understand that uh, that's needed in, in academia. But India still, by and large, in design schools also, also speak on behalf of them are, are very, um, very analog. And I've had conversations with deans of some of these schools who, who openly, I mean, in, in closed conversation, acknowledge that. And they acknowledge the issues they have uh, at a um, professor level um, and whatnot. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where it'll, it'll change, it'll take some time. The ideas of mentorship, of great teachers, of, you know, all of that stuff is, is still very weak links. And so we've tried to engage with uh, schools. Um, it's been very difficult uh, in, in India. But um, that being said, uh, there's so many students that then come to us, uh, which is what's interesting uh, and help uh, drive our visibility there. But yeah, that's really the reality uh, on that front. It's, I, I, I completely agree because like, it's just, it's so important, I think, for the younger generation to kind of get into this. And now, like, I mean, there's an argument where Oh, you can create online courses, or you can you can you can create online content, and people can appreciate you that way. But I feel like no matter how much we do try, there is that institutional angle where if that doesn't change, if there's no shift over there, there's still a there's a, there's still so much friction mm. to really be able to disseminate the information. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And thankfully, you know, digital helps, uh, you know, kind of close that divide and, and you can reach people directly, which is what we've had much more success doing, which is why our narratives on Instagram and whatnot are, are so important, because the minute you go digital and you're available, people find you. Um, it's still that that small, right, in terms of a community. And so that's the route we've, we've opted for. And the content that you guys do produce, it's Again, it's, it's actually stunning. And, and the thought process that must go in each of these articles and, and the topics that you guys choose, how and what kind of gets you to talk and to write about these, these, these topics? What gets you into what? Actually, what I'm trying to say is what got you into the idea of, let's say, a story series? How did that kind of come about? So, so just to break down how how we run um, as an organization, we have our you know sort of our, our our what a lot what most people see, which is borderandfall.com and our Instagram, and those are just very much communication platforms that you know are are, are just us writing about things that we, that we like. It's our point of view that's shared with the world. So there's no sponsored content. There's no ad advertising or, or whatnot. Um, and so there's that one vertical. That, uh, and the website actually hasn't been uploaded, I was ashamed to say, but in almost two years because it's it's kind of been on the back burner and we're figuring out, uh, well, we figured out, we just need to execute what the, the 2.0 is going to look like. Uh, it's not going to be a website. It'll be another format. Uh, so that's one. Uh, two is the agency, which is, uh, you know, where we're brands and individuals hire us for branding communication, for creative direction, for sales and distribution, for a lot of digital work, running people's social media platforms as well. Um, and so that's a lot of uh, the work in the agency at a strategic and creative level. And then the third is our nonprofit uh, of which the Sari series falls in. And we have another exciting one that we're working on. And the Sari series is something we produced um, and released about two and a half years ago. And so that specifically was creating a free accessible database that was digitally driven that uh, presented, you know, that basically documented the various sari drapes of India through short film. It was very um, made to be a very commercial easy to understand and use platform that had a very forward-looking narrative of the sari, but it was about also understanding where we came from. So how do you look at the past in order to um, identify a way forward? And so the sari series particularly for me came about, uh, you know, as uh, when I started wearing a sari a number of years ago and really trying to bring it into a daywear conversation. And I remember um, a friend of mine Arshna, whose mother runs one of the oldest uh, Kanjivarm sari shops in Bangalore and, and has so many beautiful saris, which are all silk Kanjivarm. We were discussing how do you, how do people like us wear a sari every day? And we, we sort of yeah. pledged to try it and nothing materialized. And one day I went to visit her and she was wearing a sari and I said, hey, wearing a sari? She said, yeah, she said, I've been doing it all week. Okay, great. Like you just do it. And we just, and I just started wearing a sari and I found that you know, for me, wearing something floor length to the ground uh, has always yeah. felt evening wear. It's always felt formal and, and it had a formality to it. And so I started wearing mine higher and started wearing them a little bit you know, differently. And at that time also came across, of course, um, Ritha Kapoor Chishti, who is, you know, the sort of foremost authority on uh, drapes and textiles of saris in India, who's spent an extensive amount of time documenting these. And so uh, through all of that and experimentation with with friends, we realized like we we could wear a sari and make it every day if we made it into a current narrative. Uh, otherwise, wearing it how 
we were taught to wear it uh, or how our grandmothers and mothers wore it just did not seem that aspirational or relevant to our lives on an everyday basis. And so the ownership of it, of making it one's own was something that a lot of us, not a lot of us, but a few of us personally went through Rashmi Varma, who's a designer, a uh, longtime friend and collaborator who worked with us on the Sari series. She was going through the same thing. A whole number of us did together. And that's really where we thought, you know, can we make this more accessible uh, to other people? And that's really the genesis of the project. And we thought about it for a few years and then decided, hey, we need to actually do this. And, and so it took two years to produce and it's been two years since. So the Sari series has been a, a six, six year journey, at least in our lives at this point. Wow. And something that you said, again, was, was really important where you say how wearing it every day kind of made you come to your narrative, to the new sorry, or however you kind of normalize it for, for the mm -hmm. future, or for the life of, that you live. Mm -hmm. When you were going on those trips, um, recruiting people, creating stores in India, how were you interacting with the people back then? Uh, how are you interacting with, with the environments back then to the way, let's say, for instance, now with Border and Fall and, and, the, and the outlook that you have on, on the Karigars, on Saris, on, on the different kind of elements that you work with in terms of PR, in terms of, uh, in terms of branding? What things kind of pop up that allow you to create your own narrative with the new this made in India? What is what is made in India for you now? Well, I think when I was working at Tommy in my early years at, at India, it was about representing uh, the voice of an actually an American company uh, trying to uh, retain a sense of aspiration, uh, not just retain, but but spread the gospel of that, right? And so that interaction was always with with the veneer of, of, of um, the West being aspirational. And I think that was also defining for me, not just, um, you know, the recruitment part of it and, and you know, that, that one anecdote I shared, but the whole bit of it was that why am I trying to peddle the west uh, to the east there's there's enough and i've known that it's not that i didn't know that it's just that i then fundamentally decided uh to work in it. and that's what actually drew me to india in the first place i've grown up coming to india both my parents are born in india uh very very comfortable and familiar with with the culture uh because it's my culture it's it's not you know it's not about it, it, we you know a lot of us um first generation kids have have um i mean first generation second third there's so many different ways to look at it i certainly don't see myself as as third culture but um you know you know basically children of immigrants have the privilege of a lot of us of, of feeling equally at home in in let's say canada and in india that's certainly been the case for me and so it was never about um something being revealed to me it was more about i felt that I wanted to reveal what was happening there to a wider audience, which is why I chose digital, which is why I felt it was so urgent to create a model that didn't have a revenue stream with it. You couldn't sell anything that anyone was making. There was no way to monetize it. It was just that there's some phenomenal work happening here and not enough people are seeing it because the lens is always, uh, you know, you know, West focused, focused somewhere yeah. else. And so, um, so for me, it was just about as I encountered, I felt the need to to share. And, and, and that's really where it came from. I love that. Like, it is so important for, I mean, a, a person like yourself to be that bridge builder, to give a different and uh, a narrative that is more um, true to you than what people mm -hmm. see facing from the West to the East. 
Absolutely, because then you develop um, an understanding of, of the, the importance of, of the nuances when you speak about things and, and how, you know, just English itself as a language imposes a hierarchy between, let's say, even designer and maker. Just by, by the sheer limitations of the English language in India, you're forced to then talk about the designer and the maker. And then the maker is always about the hands and the designer is technically always someone outside of India or sitting in an office, right? But, but it, it forces these decisions distinctions that actually a lot of choreographers themselves you ask them and they see themselves as the designer and the maker they're not thinking yeah. about themselves and so I think um, you know the, and those are subtleties of, of language um, and, and usage that we need to be careful of and I think you know that's something that that I'm able to offer through um, experience and exposure that's actually a perfect segue into I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about semantics and and what you're working on Sure, absolutely. So Semantics is our next nonprofit that we're currently fundraising for and very, very excited about. It's again, another idea we've had for, for years and then post the Sari series needed to take a break, um, you know, and just sort of uh, regain strength to enter into what is, uh, I mean, effectively a nonprofit space. The Sari series was entirely uh, a nonprofit initiative uh, as Semantics will be. And so essentially Semantics builds upon what I was just saying, where uh, we have a very, very, um, nuanced, particular uh, realities of design from India that because we have even in India adopted English as the language of communication, we find ourselves at a loss. And so Border and Fall is frequently, frequently in the position to write um, about brands or write for brands, hired by brands to write about themselves. And, you know, one very easy example is that if I was to, 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 to say to you, um, you know, this is a this is a brand that is contemporizing, you know, traditional age old Indian craft and bringing it to a modern day narrative, very much rooted in history. Um, but for a, you know a modern day narrative, who would I be describing? I, I could be describing Fab India. I could be describing Good Earth, Raw Mango. I mean, it could be anybody. And and aside from contemporizing and modernizing we lack the ability to be able to talk about um you know brands in, in a you know in terms of their philosophy or their their brand positioning because we're just drawing from these very limiting words uh and and i you know that's just one example or another example is um you know what is our wabi-sabi right wabi-sabi yeah. is an incredible contribution from japan in terms of a philosophy aesthetic a way of life a way of looking at things and you and i can use it today without having any ties to Japan. It's, it, we know where it comes from. We know what it means. It's not translatable uh, and, and it's, it's globally relevant, but, you know, particular. And so India must have dozens of, of wabi-sabi, uh, you know, sort of um, terms or, or, or nuances that need description. And uh, these are all things that we'd like to basically brainstorm and propose with, you know, a bunch of relevant stakeholders. So certainly not as, as an independent undertaking, but with all the right uh, collaborators to propose a new lexicon for uh, design and, and that's made in India. And so that would effectively be, whether it's a list of five words or 12 or 24, I'm not sure, we'd leave that open-ended, but we have a uh, you know, a great academic partner on board uh, to help with research and framing this. And then we have, uh, you know, a number of wonderful uh, practitioners or anthropologists or linguists from, from India and also internationally who are on board uh, to help us create this, uh, this basically body of, 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 of language uh, that we hope when used 
even in a global context with any other language will um, serve as much more of a cultural identifier of, of, of craft, of design, uh, of made in India. You know, when I, when I first read about semantics, it's, it really hits home because anyone who speaks a different language or grows up, I mean, I grew up with Punjabi and Urdu at home mm. and there's so many times where, I mean, I mean I'm not fluent. I'm, no, I am fluent. I can't read or write. Yeah, mm. I can't read or write, but I can, I can speak perfectly uh, from what I think. But mm. there are so many new words or things that my parents would say or sayings or um, not poetry, but different kinds of things that are in the vernacular of that language. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't relate and I'd be like, mom, what, what does that mean? Or dad, what does that mean? And that would be while I was listening to music or, or they were talking amongst themselves or talking to someone else. And you kind of miss that part of what the language represents and the, how much of the country and how much of the people kind of are deeply rooted in those little nuances. Mm -hmm. Jugad is a great example. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted. No, no, sorry, please go on. No, I think you got it. And we all know that example. And, and that is that is a great example. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's so much in that. that I, and that's where we say words make a difference. Um, and, and the truth is so much of design is, is there's so much weightage on visuals. And, um, and, and that's very important. But being able to speak about things, I think, you know, the crux of this is that if we don't define how we want to be spoken about, then we leave it to others to speak for us. And generally those voices are not necessarily from India and they come with their own biases and they all come in English or, you know, other major languages that are not uh, uh, aware of the sensitivities or of the need for differentiation. And, and like I said, the, the, the hierarchy within designer and maker is just one example, or even more simply, you know, what artisan or craftsperson, why can't we default to Karigar, right? Uh, that, that indicates, and that also can be inclusive of Pakistan, then it doesn't have to be just India, but it definitely brings it closer to a few geographic areas as opposed to saying an Indian craftsman, right? Or an Indian yeah. artisan, right? Which is what's used. It's just the same, you know, but we have our own word for it that we can assert. And, and then a Karigar will also, the value of that word then increases. And I'm certainly not proposing, um, you know, drawing just from Hindi or, or, or whatnot, but we have, you know, thousands of vernacular. Uh, can we just find, you know, a vernacular language? Can, can we find within that? There's enough within that to mine and to, to find. And so can we agree even through semantics to use Karigar? And that's a pledge that Border and Fall took um, about five, six years ago. So when you read anything editorial on the site or on, on Instagram, it's always Gariger, unless it's a quotation yeah. by someone else. And so we've taken that pledge. But then can we take, you know, get, get the pledge of five media, whether it's um, newspapers or publishing houses, uh, to, to pledge to use it in their language. And so this is very, very long-term, very subtle. Uh, nothing's going to change overnight. But by seeding this, and of course, language adoption is its own very particular space. And mm -hmm. there's a really interesting uh, specialist on board who, who's helping us understand how language is actually adopted. You can create what you want, but it's up to the people to use it, right? And so, you know, it just, it, it'll be a fascinating um, sort of uh, 
exploration of, of if we can actually, like I said, define uh, the parameters in which we're comfortably being spoken about, because certainly the way it is happening right now is, is, is not representative and it homogenizes the entire pool. Exactly. There's, there's two things that kind of stand out. Like, I, I completely agree. Like, if a business of fashion was to start <clears throat> openly talking about Karigars um, mm -hmm. when it came to Indian fashion, like, that would have a massive impact mm -hmm. um, on how people viewed the idea of Karigar and, and mm -hmm. the representation of, of what a Karigar is. Now, the other thing that kind of came to mind again was what we mentioned earlier, where it was no longer, I mean, with the craftsmen, it's the West looking East. Mm -hmm. It's not the East looking West when it comes back to that. How do you kind of frame and tell that narrative? Mm -hmm. No one from the West will necessarily know what a Karigar is. Mm -hmm. And they will definitely not make those nuances either, unless there's a person like yourself who is able to build that bridge between the two, having understanding of both those cultures and those nuances who's able to then create a platform such as semantics and, and, and the sorry series and all these other things that you, you do through your platform of order and fall. Mm. So I, I love what you do with that and, and how you kind of are helping not just the language and, and, and the different kind of nuances of, of design and fashion kind of come forward um, through what you've built. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. No, it's, it's, it's just super important. Now, um, what in working with brands, let's say like Raw Mango, mm -hmm. how how do you work? I mean, what, how what was the the project that you guys were working on with them? How do you kind of look at a brand like Raw Mango? How do you kind of represent something like that mm. um, to the West, to the East itself? How? I want you to kind of walk me around an example of how you you go about looking at a, at a client. Sure, um, and and each client is is case to case, and and I'll walk you through raw mango and maybe um, an, another one, so you can see the um, diversity. And, and raw mango is certainly uh, one of the most holistic engagements that we have. It's I've been working with Sanjay and the team for almost five years at this point in the capacity of a strategic director for the brand. And so Raw Mango has been around for 11 years, uh, driven very much by the extreme clarity and vision uh, that Sanjay has uh, and, uh, and that he has built the foundation of. And so when you work with clients, it's always about articulating, uh, you know, helping them articulate their point of view, uh, whether that's from a revenue requirement, product requirement, or, you know, communication. And so with strategic direction at Raw Mango, my, my role is very dynamic in which uh, all of those are discussed. So whether it's looking at collection planning or overseeing all the communication that comes out of the brand um, or you know, making decisions on retail store openings and locations, uh, there's no holds barred. And I think with Sanjay, uh, and, and with a lot of people, they're surrounded by enough yes men. And so, you know, for him, he's always said to me, you know, I just want you to be mirror and, and tell me the truth. And so uh, that is a very, um, you know, contentious position at times, uh, because as a sounding board for him as well, it's not always about agreeing, but about bringing in different point of views. And what I really admire about someone like Sanjay is that sometimes um, he has people around him uh, that are contrarian voices that actually help him in affirming his and so he doesn't need people around him to all say yes 
Uh, he mm -hmm. just wants different points of view so that he can find his center. And he has a very, very strong compass and sense of, sense of uh, center. And, you know, as you grow any business, and I've been privileged to be part of the business as we grow from, um, you know, to a mid to a larger size, which has its own challenges and um, have been part of, you know, the retail expansion. Actually, uh, I remember calling Sanjay when, you know, found the, the location for the Bombay store. There was an old store called Bombay Electric that was, um, you know, going to be not renewing their lease. And so I found out about it, called Sanjay, said, this is going to be the jewel in the crown we need to open up here. And, you know, we really all worked hard to make that happen. But, you know, those are dream positions for me. I think my role with Raw Mango is one of the most um, difficult uh, and rewarding uh, things that I do in my work and very, very uh, special because it is, uh, it, it exemplifies the holistic nature of working together where you really work on built synergies from decision making and no one has a sense of um, there's clear uh, deliverables and there's clear uh, responsibilities, but at the same time, there's no, uh, there's, there's nothing that's beneath any of us. And I think that's, what's beautiful about working with people who will, at the end of the day, all of us will unpack boxes and prune the floor if we need to, because uh, we're all cut from the same cloth in that way, uh, where hard work, there's no substitution for hard work. And so certainly the raw mango team uh, exemplifies that as well. So that's an example of, of, of raw mango. And, and that can go from um, you know, and a lot of people think we just run their social media, uh, which we certainly don't do. And, and very early on, uh, we, you know, oversaw the hiring of someone who, who reports to me in Raw Mango who, who does that. And then I look at all the editorial content or still look at all interviews and, you know, Sanjay's voice that's out there in the public domain. Uh, but it, it's very much a team effort. And so to build a brand like Raw Mango uh, really requires uh, immense uh, clarity and no compromise from the founder, which, which Sanjay has, and then a phenomenal team behind it. So, um, so it's hard to speak directly to things. It's, it's much more about helping be um, the oil in that machinery and then at a strategic uh, level, of course, uh, certain things, but it's just about being able to oversee that they happen. Um, so, that, so that's raw mango. But, you know, on the other side, you know, we, we worked with uh, one of my favorite jewelers, Hanut Singh, uh, on producing a book, a catalog of his, of the last five years of his work. And that was, you know, a four month project, which was such a pleasure to work on because you got to dig into his archives, his personal imagery, work directly with him to create a print, uh, you know, catalog uh, of the highest quality that would be circulated to the most, you know, relevant stakeholders that know his work, that don't know his work and um, just represent his body of work. Uh, and he has a very, very different aesthetic uh, but, you know, the ties that connect all the work that we do, whether it's semantics, the Sari series, or any of our clients, is that all of them are shifting perceptions of what uh, made in India means. And that is the tagline, you know, that you see of us on Instagram. And I remember thinking, what, what, what connects everything that we do? Because it's certainly not service. It's certainly not, you know, a particular part of the industry. It's, it's really you know, authentic voices who are shaping the narrative of design in India and 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 shifting, literally shifting the perception. Uh, and and every client that we work with, I'm, I feel so privileged. Uh, it's one of you know the things that I hold closest to me is who we've worked with because they all do uh, phenomenal work. It's 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 really interesting to see as well because, I mean, being an agency or or a strategy consultant like the amount of work that it takes to kind of jump into a brand really kind of understand the 
the whole company, the team, it's so much effort. It is so, so much effort. And to be able to really exemplify what a founder of the company wants to become that person for them um, is, is just tremendously difficult. Um, to kind That's of right, that build. difficult yet rewarding. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, completely. yeah. So, Michael, last question for you. Sure. If you could tell me about three experiences that have changed your life the most. Professionally. Anything, professionally or personally. Oh boy, that's a heavy question. Uh, three, three experiences. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, uh, I mean, these are in no particular order, but I think in terms of mm -hmm. business, um, uh, learning how to work with difficult clients and um, adjust, you know, expectations accordingly has been really important in, in able to anticipate and, um, uh, you know, kind of, kind of pre preempt, uh, yeah, preempt expectations. I think, I think I fundamentally have a, an ability to work with a lot of creatives, a lot of people who are, I'll use the word difficult, not in a negative way, but who are, like I said, who have a lot of clarity of, of what they want. They're all building incredible things. And um, I think, uh, you know, from, I mean, there's a number of experiences that speak uh, to that. That's one of the biggest learnings I'd say uh, that's based on a lot of experiences where just expectations management is so important um, and, mm -hmm. and being able to, uh, be in a place where I feel like that's a priority for, for me and for the client or for someone to understand uh, and manage and balance um, has voted me very well. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or just answering it the way I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but also, you know, things like, you know, the experiences, I mean, just making that decision to move to India when I was, you know, 26 years old. Um, I don't know who that person was right now because that was just um, I mean I know it was me but in my life right now I see that as uh, you know it was still we weren't the first wave but we were still early enough where people all of our parents and friends and anyone was like are you well why would you go back to India what's what's in India you know and I think uh, to have um, that belief in me first and foremost more than it wasn't about the country or anything but uh, to be on an adventure uh, I think, uh, and, and to be in pursuit of something of the unknown and to embrace that, uh, that was very much defining for me. There's so many wonderful things happened. I mean, I met my husband, um, on that first trip in India, just by chance, uh, you know, I, I decided to move to India. I, you know, after that trip, I mean, there's so many defining things of, of that trip. Um, and, um, third, I think, I think hardship, uh, in, in personal life, uh, in terms of loss of, of, of certain family members, I think the idea of, um, I think the ideas of, of grief and love are very interesting in that we're taught so much in life, uh, to deal with so many things, but with the basic human emotions, no one teaches you how to love, no one teaches you how to grieve, you know, you're really hit with it when you're hit with it. And in that time, um, you know, you grapple with things. Uh, and I think uh, those have been very defining for me uh, as experiences uh, that have uh, shown me the resilience uh, that we have as humans, the incredible capacity uh, to bear uh, pain. And, and I don't believe that it's, uh, 
you know, without purpose. I think there there is a purpose. And um, for me, those have been uh, pretty defining. I'm not sure how they've defined me, but I can definitely, when you ask me a question like that, uh, think that those, those emotions have all uh, been my greatest uh, learning moments, um, whether it's about uh, patience, kindness, compassion, uh, you know, d despair, I think that's really what I think it comes down to more than more than anything, right? Those are, you know, I think that's also what's happening in the world a lot right now in terms of emotions right being now, felt. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I'm referring to them more acutely of, of certain instances in my life, but um, mm -hmm. those have really always shaped me. I've always looked at them to, as, as wonderful, not wonderful moments, but moments where like wonder in that true sense, like when you use that word, like they're really full of wonder and, and, uh, and, and meat, you know, that, that you can keep drawing from um, positively, sure. of course. Yeah. So, so that's, um, that's some things that come to mind. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any comments or feedback, please do share them with me. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia, A-M-A-D-M-I-A-A-N, or email me at uh, ahmad.saeed at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>